Father, we do praise you and worship you for all that you've done for us. And you have given us a story, a story that we want to sing to the nations. We want to announce it to the people of this earth and tell your great gospel. And Lord, I pray that we do this in our words, in our description of the doctrine and truths of Jesus Christ, Him crucified, resurrected, ascended. But Lord, may we also do it in the way in which we live, the way we act. May we be honorable as people in this earth. May we show the dignity of Christ in the way in which we live. Lord, I pray that those who are with us or perhaps watching who don't know you, I pray that you would stir in them, your spirit would regenerate their heart to understand and obey the gospel, that they would have faith in Christ, turn from their sin, and follow after him. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's great to be back here in the pulpit. It hasn't been very long. I was gone just a couple of Sundays. Uh, if you're new with us, the pinnacle of our worship is to study what God has said with an obedient heart. We don't do this because a pastor likes to hear himself talk. We do it because it's given to us in Scripture. This is what the saints do when they gather. They gather for worship and music and fellowship and accountability, and then they sit down under the preaching and teaching of God's Word by the appointed elder. And I miss those, just those two Sundays, uh, those times. We are in our study of 1 Peter. And what Peter's doing in this section that we completed before we got to the, the Advent season, the section we completed or we're about to complete at the beginning parts of chapter 2 is that Peter's giving us the identity of true believers. What is their identity? If you're a true believer, what is true about you? What is near and dear to your heart? If you can understand who you are, if you can understand what you're all about, if you can understand what you're called to be, how you need to grow, where your ultimate destination is, Peter lays this out for us, you can understand what you're supposed to be in this earth. This is important. He'd already made clear to them their elect exiles, and we talked about that at the beginning. But he lays out for us that all of us as Christians do not have their ultimate home in this earth. This is true for every single one of us. There are probably very few people in this room who were born on this rock here in Hawaii. There are some, I'm sure. But most of us were born, born elsewhere. But even if you go to maybe the place you call home, what you discover, if you're a real Christian, what you discover is there's no place on this earth that is home. There may be some more familiarity, more comfort, or, or more convenience if you go to a place that you call home, or maybe this is where you've lived for many years, even if you weren't born here, and you call this place home. But, but ultimately, you know there's this longing down deep inside that your true identity is not as a citizen of this place or even this planet, but that which is to come. Well, how are we to live in this earth as we sojourn, as we journey as people living in a home that's not our own? How are we to live? Peter's laying this out as our identity is tied to that ultimate destination, the new heaven, the new earth, place that God will create in the end. As elect exiles, what is true of our identity and how does this define how we shall live? That's the question that Peter is answering in these verses. Just as a reminder, I want to walk through the, the first couple of uh, elements of identity, and then we're going to look at the, the final one today, uh, just to bring you up to speed where we were 
they're leading into the Advent season a month or so ago. The first thing we discovered in this section is that we are living stones. Remember that definition? We are living stones. What does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, we're united with Christ. Peter said, Jesus himself is a living stone rejected by man, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, he says, are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. So the first thing that we can identify as being living stones is that we are live in union with Christ. We are like Christ. We are Christians. That may have been a term that was used derogatively toward people who followed Jesus, but now we, we cherish that idea that we are unified with Christ and we live like Him, we want to talk like Him and be like Him, and we have spiritual union with Him. We also learned in that section there at the beginning of 2 that being a living stones means you carry out this role of priesthood. You're a part of, of the temple that's being built up. And so we call people like priests did to worship Yahweh. We call people to give their lives to that worship as living stones. Finally, as living stones, we are a fulfillment. This is all part of God's plan that He would build up this people of God, almost like a, a structure, a builder would build a, a temple or a house. He puts this all together and God is doing this. This is all part of something that God promised. And Peter gives us some quotes from the Old Testament that this is all according to God's plan. So that's the first identity. We are living stones. The second identity we saw is that we are, in verse uh, 9 and 10, very famous verse, we are God's chosen people. What does that mean that we're chosen people? We're a chosen race. The Bible doesn't look at race like mankind does. We look at race and we think of genetics and skin color and culture. God says there's fundamentally two races of people, my people and not my people. He'll even use, uh, Paul uses the term Jew and Gentile, and he shifts to using Jew and Gentile to talking about true Jews and true Gentiles. There can be people who are Jewish ethnically, but are Gentile spiritually. There are people like me who are Gentile ethnically, but are a true Jew because we follow God. And so God divides the human race, not by color of skin, not by your culture or background, not by your genetics but by whether or not you follow God. We are chosen by Him. We are His royal priesthood. We are called to, to uh, announce the excellencies of Him who called us from darkness into His wonderful light. That's our identity as God's chosen people. Now today we're going to learn from, Peter's, from Peter another aspect of our identity, and that is that we are sojourners. That's the third identity I want to draw from this section of 1 Peter. Now understand, we've talked about this theme, even in this sermon, I've already preached a couple of things about this idea of being elect exiles, that this is not our home. But now what Peter wants to do is to bring some action to this description. What's the principal idea of a sojourner on this earth who's exiled, who's away from your home? What are we supposed to live like as sojourners? And I want to key in there on verse 12, because he answers the question, live honorably among Gentiles. Peter must mean spiritual Gentiles, because many of they themselves, to whom Peter wrote this letter, were themselves Gentiles ethnically, so he's talking about living among the spiritually 
Gentile world, living among people who don't follow God. How are we as Christians to live as sojourners? What's the principle driving ethic as to how we live? Well, Peter sums it up. Live honorably. Be a people of dignity and honor. And he gives us two motivations in this passage to live honorably as sojourners. Let me read the text for our day, and I'm going to read the whole section just, again, to sort of refresh our minds of this whole passage, and we'll jump in and study it together this morning. I'll begin up in verse 4 of chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and then I'll go down to verse 12. Follow along as I read aloud. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This last year, in October, during the World Series, one of the umpires named Pat Holberg called a perfect game, meaning he did not miss any balls or any strikes. Now, Pat Holberg is not very well known. In fact, those of you who are baseball fans, you may not have even known who he was until that happened. He's notable now because of his feet, but I would venture to guess that not very many of us, even in this room, remember that name, even if you read it a few months ago when it happened. And that got me thinking, who is the most famous umpire? What's a name that a lot of people know? What's a recognizable umpire? And the only one that I could think of was the least loved umpire in all of MLB. His name is Angel Hernandez. He's considered the worst umpire in all of Major League Baseball. And and it's not just some sort of emotion. It is objectively true. If you go and read what they call the umpire scorecard or umpire audit, and you you look at how they call games, he's completely inconsistent. He misses things all the time. He's always making mistakes and then trying to fix those mistakes with worse calls. On top of that, and this is according to the players. I don't know the man personally. I'm sure he's a fine man who loves his wife and is great to his kids. But according to the players, 
he's kind of a jerk. They don't like being around. He's, he's, he digs his heels in. He kicks people out for offending him. He's very personal about the way he umpires, and they all generally just hate him. And he's just considered, it's just a well-known fact, he's protected by the union so they can't fire him. And he's just considered that Angel Hernandez is the worst umpire in all of MLB. Little does Angel know that he's being preached about right now. He's probably <laughs> taking a vacation here in Hawaii, maybe. He's considered the most notable, or I'm sorry, notorious umpire in all of Major League Baseball. So there's a difference between being notable and being notorious, right? You know the difference? Yeah, notable, you're known for being good, for good reasons. Notorious is you're well-known for bad reasons. Well, Angel Hernandez is notorious. Well, the word there, verse 12, if you see that honorable, it's the exact opposite. It's calling us to be notable for all the right reasons. Be someone who is an all-around good human being. Don't be notorious for your vice. Be notable because you are a good person. And it's not just the technical word there. The Greek word is simply the word we translate good. But it's a bigger issue, and that's why the ESV and other translations use different words. Like ESV uses honorable. Other translations say righteous or honest. One of the older translations I saw said the word seemly. May your conduct be beautiful and becoming and seemly and honorable. How you live your life should be definitively good. We are to be notable for our honesty, notable for our dignity, our nobility, the beauty of our speech, the right way in which we deal with people. It should stand out in this world as different. People think of you even if they have acted wrongly to you or have crossed your path for some reason or another, even if they've slandered you and mistreated you, in the back of their minds, they ought to know that you are an honorable person. Later in chapter 3, Peter offered this same mentality as we suffer. He says, even when you're persecuted, you're persecuted for righteousness' sake and you're, you have a clean conscience knowing you're suffering for, what, for doing what is good. When that happens, the people who revile you will be put to shame. Their, their conscience are ashamed. They know they're persecuting someone who's doing what is right. Now, we discussed this already. Again, Peter told us about being elect exiles, not of this world. And what that means in terms of action, this is what he's getting to in this passage, in terms of action is that we are noticeably notably different. If you look at the rest of the book, it's really a description of how we're to be like this. In fact, a number of the, the commentators that I've read were sort of split. A number of the commentators put this paragraph, these two sentences, these two verses, at the head of the rest of the book. Some of them put it at the conclusion of the last section. I think it's both. It gives us our identity, but he's getting ready to move into how we live and act as sojourners in this world getting ready to tell us how to live. He's getting ready to describe for us how we are to live as husband and wife, how that's supposed to be different, even in your marriage. How your work as an employer or employee should be different. How we should live among one another as, as Christians, how we should operate. So I think it applies to both. It is a conclusion, concluding remark to our identity, but it is sort of setting the tone for the rest of the book of 1 Peter, how we should live as sojourners. 
So that key attribute as sojourners is to live honorably. And what Peter's going to do in these two verses is give us motivation to be salt and light. Motivation to confirm the message that we bear in our hearts as the message, as the dearest message of all, the message of the gospel. How are we to live in such a way that confirms that message? It doesn't contradict that message. Peter says you're going to live with honor. You're going to live with integrity and honesty and all-around goodness. So two motivations, very important motivations for living honorably. Number one, live honorably for the sake of your soul. Live honorably for the sake of your soul. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's encouragement. The command here is to abstain from passions of the flesh. What that tells us right at the top is, even as a Christian, and every Christian knows this, you still have carnal passions. There's still that residue of the old man that wants to make itself authoritative in your life. He wants to assert himself in the way you live life. And he's trying to, to break free from the, this, the conscience that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. He's trying to break free from the morals and truths that God speaks to you through his word. This old carnal flesh, and we all deal with this until we are rid of our old bodies, our old minds, and God gives us a reconstituted, resurrected body. We have these passions of the flesh. We are to abstain from them. We are to do war. That word abstain is actually a forceful word. We're to wage war just as it's waging war against us. We are to fight back. Now, all of us have different temptations. Every single human being has a different set of temptations. Maybe some of us are more similar. Maybe some of us are more dissimilar. But all of us struggle. And the fact of the matter is, whether it's we're dissimilar because our personalities are different or whether we're dissimilar just because of context. Sometimes I wonder if that's really all it is, right? You, you struggle with certain things in your life because you have a certain context, a certain rearing, a certain family situation or work situation. And I can't judge you because I might struggle with the same sins if I had the same context. We can't judge one another. We struggle with sin. We struggle with these passions of the flesh. Regardless of the reason that we struggle, we are to wage war against these passions. They're not godly. The passions of our flesh are carnal and evil. It's part of that old dead man that seeks to worship self, which is to ultimately worship Satan. There's no such thing as someone who is neutral before God. There's no such thing. So when you give in to the passions of the flesh, you're not worshiping God, you're ultimately worshiping Satan. You may not be a Satanist, but you're giving over to those carnal, wicked, evil desires, and you're aligning with the forces of evil. Now, what are those passions? What are those common failures? What are those carnal desires? I really like immediately when you read this passage, many of you may have already thought of this, Galatians chapter 5, it's known for, toward the end, the fruit of the Spirit. Paul gives us a list of the, the fruit of the Spirit. But before that, he gives us the fruits of the flesh, or the fruit of the flesh. 
Very similar language there, verse 17, Galatians 5. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These two are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So there's the real you, the regenerated, Spirit-indwelt you that wants to do what's right, but there are these passions of the flesh that are making war against you, and you should make war against them. What are those desires? Paul lists a bunch of these desires. I see it in four categories. First category, the first three sins he mentions there, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. If you have decided in the year 2024 to read through the Bible, you may have noticed after mankind fell, Genesis chapter 3, how quickly sin dominated the world. And even how quickly sexual sin. Within a few chapters, you have polygamy. You have murder that's happening between uh, husbands and wives. You have all kinds of sensual, sexual desires rising up in the heart of man. There is never a generation that's more pure than the last. We may see all that's going on now because it's celebrated and and put in our face, really shoved in our face, it seems like now. But these sins have been with the, the human race from the very beginning. It's abject wickedness. It's absolute filth. And Paul says this is one of the passions of your flesh. Do war against it. The second uh, category, he says, idolatry and sorcery. I think these have this idea of worshiping or conjuring or looking to something else other than God for your growth and spiritual uh, flourishing. Idolatry and sorcery. The third category has to do with relationships, and it's a longer list. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. We're all guilty of all of those things. Maybe there's some of those things you're guilty of more than the others. These are things that divide humans, that break up marriages, that make it where parents won't talk to children for decades sometimes. Children won't talk to each other. Enmity, strife, jealousy. The final category has to do with outright debauchery. He mentions a couple of things and then gives us sort of an etc. He says, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. This is when someone gives themselves to all carnal desires and just gives in. No restraint. Just fleshly, carnal desire satisfied. And as you know, it's never satisfied. So take your pick. Where do you struggle in that list of sins, in those categories? Where have you failed in? Ladies and gentlemen, you should wake up in the morning determined to make war against these passions of the flesh. Holy war. Abstain from these things. They're done on you that you are the worst sinner that you know. You're aware of more sins that you commit than anyone else's. You may think of someone else and just trash them in your mind and they've hurt you so much, but 
you've sinned more than they have. In your mind, you know all the things that you violated, all the little thoughts, all the attitudes. You know all those things. You even know that there are things you don't know about. Abstain, make war against the fleshly passions. Wage war. Why? Because these things, these fleshly passions, wage war against your soul. And I think this idea alludes to a couple of things. I don't think we have to pick which one is that, that Peter is talking about. I think as Peter's broad enough here, I think he refers to both. A, it means to, that when you give into sin, there's a, a rotting, degrading, putrefying effect that happens upon your soul. Uh, scholars agree here, by the way, that the word soul here doesn't just talk about, the, it's not just talking about your, something inner that's sort of sec, sep, separated or segregated from the rest of you, your, your life. No, it's the thing that controls everything. It's the CPU of your life. And so this has, anytime you give in to these fleshly pa passions, it has an effect on everything. It has a degrading, rotting, putrefying effect on everything. You may not think so. You may think it's only affecting one little portion of your life. And no, it's affecting everything, every area, whether you think so or not. It's affecting your whole life. It's affecting the quality of your joy. It's affecting your mind, your heart, your relationships, your worships, your worship. Sometimes ongoing sin can affect your, your physical body. The writer of the Proverbs says, bitterness dries the bones. Bitter people actually have physiological, it's proven, they have physiological effects of ongoing bitterness and lack of forgiveness. It affects you physically. Giving into lust affects your endorphins and your hormones and giving in to pride affects the way you think. It actually messes with logic and how to think straight because you interpret everything through pride and self-serving. It actually impacts every part of your life. The other option, and again, I think Peter means both. I think it means, yes, it, it affects you. As, even as a Christian, it has effect on your soul. I think it also means that you must carry with you this idea if I, that if I perpetually give in to sin, if I perpetually enjoy sin, if I'm not growing in Christ, if I'm not maturing beyond sin, having some at least minor victories against, in my war against sin, then quite possibly I'm not a genuine believer. And quite possibly my soul is not alive to Christ. We have to carry with us this idea that known as the perseverance of the saints. God's elect are not people who merely pray a prayer and then can do whatever they want knowing that they've got the ticket to heaven. No, it's a way of life that is full of faith and repentance. It's constantly having faith and constantly repenting and growing and maturing. God begins a work in us and He brings it all the way to completion. He sanctifies us and makes us more and more holy by the word of truth. heard in a sermon this week, someone said, a person who's not being purified from sin should have no claim of being saved from it. So it's possible that if you perpetually and habitually give in more and more to sin, even if you had some spiritual or religious experience, it's possible that you're not genuine. What an important sanctifying thought. 
If I'm a true believer, there must be a disdain for sin. There must be a hatred of my sin, a war that I want to wage against sin. Maybe I'm not equipped. Maybe I'm not, uh, uh, I don't have enough friends to help me in this. Now, that's what the church is for, to help you wage war against these things. But if you don't have a disdain for these things, maybe it's because you're not a child of God after all. God does not owe nor does He grant assurance to Christians whose life are dominated by sin. Well, that's number one. Live honorably for the sake of your own soul. Number two, live honorably for the sake of other souls. Look there in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, before we jump into this, you guys probably don't need me to tell you this, but it needs to be said when we read verses like this. A gospel, the, the gospel, an evangelistic message must be presented with words and truth. The gospel must be presented with what happened in history and with the doctrine that Jesus Christ is the God-man who came and lived a perfect life, providing the righteousness that we need to cover us. It needs to be presented with the idea that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a penalty for the sins of all who would believe in Him, anyone who would believe in Him. It needs to come with the message that Christ then was victorious, raising up from the grave over sin and death, and He ascended to heaven just as we will be resurrected and be in heaven with God. It must be presented with the idea that if someone does not repent and turn, they are part of the spiritual Gentiles and will be followers of ultimately Satan and will be penalized and punished with him forever. It must be presented with these truths. And we know this because Paul says it plainly, Romans chapter 10, How then will they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? And how are, they here to, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent as it, is, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us. So, this is the verse I'm getting to, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The ramatos of Christ. The message and truth of Christ. This is the basis of the Great Commission. This is how we are to make disciples. People are not saved by osmosis, just being around Christians. They have to hear the gospel, they have to understand it and follow it. They have to obey the gospel. Now, the reason I say this is that sometimes someone comes to a passage like this and they contradict references that I just gave you, Matthew 28, Romans 10, and beyond. And they say something along the lines that the best gospel that you can preach is by living well or living a godly life. Or perhaps the old trope, sometimes wrongly attributed to Francis of Assisi, he didn't say this, but a lot of times people say he did. Preach the gospel if necessary, use words. You, you can't preach the gospel without words. There's words in the gospel. The four gospels are a whole bunch of words. You've got to give it to them. Nevertheless, 
That being said, you will undermine the message that you preach and believe in and hold dear, the message that your pastor preaches, the message that so many Christians have even died for, if you're a bad person, if you can't control your tongue, if you can't control your lust, if you can't control your attitude, if you live a life like that as a notorious person, you undermine the message you say you believe in, the very message you're supposed to be sharing with the lost people around you. Likewise, if you are notable because of your good behavior, you demonstrate the gospel. You show them what Christ in someone's life looks like. You validate the message of the gospel. You're someone who lives differently, has a higher moral standard than other people around you. You will enhance the message and demonstrate the message of the gospel. So what Peter is saying here in verse 12, he's imagining a situation where there is a hateful, sinful people. They're mocking those of us who are Christians, perhaps even persecuting you. But watching your reaction, watching the way you suffer, and watching the way you live your life, the message is nevertheless validated. They realize this person is preaching the truth. Here is someone, even if they're persecuting Christians, here is someone hearing the message of Christ and then seeing the message of Christ alive in the person. In their hearts, they recognize this person talks differently. This person thinks differently. This person uses money differently. They raise their kids differently. Their marriage is different than my marriage. They have a coherent worldview that is consistent and clear. And even as their lips utter mockery and scorn and hateful language to you, their conscience is pierced because they know you live righteously. And it might just be that they, too, turn like you did and glorify God. That's what Peter is imagining there in verse 12. Folks, this is why Jesus did not tell his disciples, what I want you to do is make converts, converts, procure prayers of salvation. He said, no, make disciples. What else were the disciples to think when Jesus commanded them to make disciples other than what he had just done with them? Life on life. Jesus had lived with them, talked with them. They saw Jesus in every conceivable situation. They saw Jesus tempted. They saw Jesus go through hardship. They saw Jesus hungry. They saw him when he was tired. They saw the way Jesus acted. Everything that he did validated the message that he spoke with his lips. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you endeavor to make disciples, if you endeavor to make Jesus known as we're commanded to do, then... We should live a life consistent with this. That doesn't mean you can't make any mistakes as a Christian. We do. But even your response to those mistakes and those, even your own sins, the response that you have in those moments will preach the gospel to others. Peter has a sincere hope that the way in which people sojourn on this world, the way in which they act, not only in the message that they preach, but in the way in which they walk, all coheres into the message of the gospel. That was Jesus' hope. Remember Matthew 5, 16, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. 
Now, before we go, I need to address that last phrase, kind of an odd phrase at the end of verse 12, the day of visitation. What does that mean? Many people, good people, believe it's talking about the day of judgment when God comes to this earth and He uh, lashes out against all those who are His enemies. He judges. He brings justice upon everyone. And this is definitely true. There is a sense in which God is glorified, not just in saving souls, but in judging people, right? God is glorified because He's a just God, and we will worship Him for His justice as He punishes Satan and all those who follow Him. Condemnation of Satan will bring about God's glory. Every tongue will confess, voluntarily or involuntarily, voluntarily with joy and gratitude, involuntarily with grief and hate. But I don't think that's what Peter's talking about. I think when he says the, the day of visitation, I think salvation of lost people, of Gentiles, is in view, spiritual Gentiles. For one thing, there are several references in Jewish literature, older Jewish literature than the New Testament, that use this language, day of visitation, to talk about Gentiles coming into God's people. The other evidence, I think it comes from the fact that several times, this same, at least the same notion of God's visitation is the Holy Spirit regenerating the hearts of people all over the earth to become true Jews. I think of Acts 13, 48, Romans 4, 20, 1 Corinthians 2, 7, Ephesians 1, 6, 2 Thessalonians, 3, 2 Thessalonians 3, Revelations 5. The idea of God's visiting people connected to people becoming true Jews, becoming genuine followers of Christ. And I think that's what Peter is saying. These Gentiles will hear the gospel and they will then see how the gospel changes a life. That's the message. That's the dream that Peter is setting out for us. So essentially, that combination, gospel message and your good, honorable living, present to the world a unified testimony to the person and work of Christ. And your hope is that that will impact their souls. It will eventually save them. Well, let's wrap this up. How are we to sojourn on this earth all the way to the time when God calls us home? We are to be light, salt, city on a hill. Those who proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His wonderful light, but also those who live and act excellently. We do this for His sake, for His glory. We do it out of a motivation to continue to be sanctified and purify our own souls and for the sake of those who are watching, lost people who are watching us. Well, let's pray that we would not grow weary in doing this good work. Father, we pray that you would give us the desire. I pray you'd stir within us the desire to do what is right. We pray that the words of Peter here, these inspired truths that you spoke through Peter and his context, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. I pray that your word would truly sanctify us today. Call us to live a life holy before you. Well, we pray that it would be honorable in this world for our sake, for the sake of those who are watching, and ultimately for your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, if you'll stand with me for a benediction. I'm going to read straight from Colossians, um, excuse me, uh, Galatians 6, 9 and 10. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up.
So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith.